Growth is expensive. Marketing, if you need more leads, is expensive. Hiring new team members, there's a lag between when you hire that person and when they're really actually profitable for you. There's a lag in training time, getting them up to speed. So that's why I think that step to growing your business is solving the cash crunch because that's where a lot of people struggle and that's where a lot of the problems lie. Welcome to the More Clients, Less Effort podcast, where we provide expert insights and strategies to turbocharge your business growth. I'm your host, Tim Hyde, and in this series, we'll unpack the secrets, proven systems, and the sales and marketing strategies used by successful business owners to attract, convert, and keep A-class clients on autopilot. Whether you're a seasoned entrepreneur looking to scale your customer acquisition or a budding startup owner looking to crack the code on attracting the right clients, you've come to the right place. Join us on this journey to building a thriving business that leaves a lasting impact. Now let's get started. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of More Clients, Less Effort. I am joined by the amazing Michael Walk today. Michael's a fractional CFO with over 19 years of commercial experience and the founder of Trimline, which specializes in helping agency owners stay profitable as they navigate growth, the growth curve to 5 million in revenue and beyond. And I think there's some lessons we're going to pull out of today, Michael, that probably apply to every single business in the world who are navigating this growth curve to 5 million, not just for agencies. Welcome. Thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having me, Tim. Yeah, we're excited to be here. Mate, first question I'm going to ask, and our YouTube viewers will notice this. Please explain the mushroom that is on the bookshelf behind you. <laughs> That's actually a lamp. It's just, just not on at the moment, but it's a cool little wooden mushroom lamp. And I love it. I think it's really cool. That's why it's there. Okay, there we go. We grab the cool stuff that we see and we stick it there and, you know, creates a conversation piece. I thought you might have been going into some sort of really weird metaphor about, you know, most people are mushrooms when it comes to running a business and, you know, they, they sit in the dark <laughs> and they get <laughs> fed on proverbial <laughs> shit. <laughs> uh, no, I don't have a deeper metaphor for it. I just think it looks cool. Yeah, no, I like it. I like it. I actually have seen one that's like you want one of those ones that kind of has a little sort of uh, repulsor, you know, battery, um, a magnet in it, so it floats and spins around. Oh, that's cool. I want to get one of those, mate. You've always liked the game of business, and somehow after becoming an auditor for EY after uni, you've gone. I don't want to be an auditor. I want to get into business. Talk to me about how you got started. How did you discover? this business thing? I always loved it. I always loved economics at school and reading the financial review and hearing the heroes and villains in the corporate world. We live in in a capitalism world, right? Like That's how this world operates. And a business is everyone's little ship, little venture to, to kind of cast out into this world, make a life for themselves, make a living. And doing that well and building something of value and offering the world, solving a problem. I feel like that's just an endlessly fascinating topic to me. There's so many different business models and approaches, and I just find it an endlessly fascinating topic. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think it's the same. And I, you know, I know similar background to me. We were just talking off here that I did uh, some audit- auditing work for work experience as a student in high school and for the Pharmacy Guild of Australia. And uh, yeah. yeah, that put me off it completely. <laughs> that put I me can off. imagine. Being I an auditor, imagine. definitely, completely. Yeah. Um, but couldn't it, shake and, this sort of love for business that I'd seen with uh, Gordon Gecko and Bud Fox from Full Street. <laughs> yeah. But look, the good thing with auditing, the, the bad thing is you're doing the photocopying and the filing to begin. 
the good thing is yeah. you see lots of different businesses and you have to understand a whole bunch of different businesses. You're going to their on site, you're speaking to the people in, in various departments. So it's a, such a great education in a variety of different areas. And it kind of, you know, it really does spark your interest. If you're aware enough, if you don't want to just do the grind and the photocopying and hate it, but if you want to question what you're doing and why you're there, that's kind of what I took out of it, I guess. Yeah. Where was the pivot for you? I know that you worked in sort of finance and film and TV and took lots of short-term jobs all over the place. What was it about those experiences that says, not just with an accounting certification that says, I don't want to work for somebody else. I want to kind of lead my own ship. What was it about the allure of business ownership that dragged you in? I think the ability to make your mark on the world and to have freedom. The reason I joined Beanages, my previous company, and also then created Trimline was for freedom over my location, over my time, and to kind of have a little bit of control and destiny over when and where I work and those kind of things, who I work with. So I think in those big corporate roles, I got a little bit frustrated being told what to do when the person didn't have a great reason for why I was doing it. I kind of always wanted to know the why. And then if I understood and was bought in, I found it really easy to do. So I think a lot of entrepreneurs might relate, but they didn't like being told what to do by someone else. So they had to start their own thing and, and kind of <laughs> do it like that. But I always juggled it. Yeah. So I always had something on the side. At uni, I had a t-shirt business. Whilst at EY, I was doing short film productions on the side. And I kind of eventually got into working in finance roles and film production companies and also running my own little film production company on the side and making shorts. So I always kind of had that spark but it was never maybe my main breadwinner for a long period of time. Mm. And then eventually the accounting and the creativity have combined into Trimline and are kind of doing both now. There's a term you don't typically hear in the same sentence, creativity and accounting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, that's... I mean, maybe not something that the tax office necessarily want to hear, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, most of the creative... creative Tell me what you mean by that. What, What do you mean by creativity and accounting? Put together well filmmaking is content production right and now i use that yeah. in my sales and marketing efforts i do videos educating people in those kind of things so you yeah. know the long-term plan of making info products and educational videos where i'm still producing content myself that's kind of skills that i learned in the film game many years ago so it's cool to use different skill sets that i've accumulated not just the accounting and the business knowledge and experience there we go mate you guys heard it here first on uh, more clients less effort an, account- an extroverted accountant who will look outside <laughs> to see their, your shoes rather than just their own. <laughs> no, You've not heard one. that joke. That's a good one. No, I haven't heard that. I think it's an interesting thing, you know, this accounting space. I mean, because I know so many accountants who, yes, you know, they kind of own this term business advisory now. A lot of accountants are pivoting to this business advisory sort of term, um, but don't really do a good job of running their own business themselves. So as a sort of almost government mandated industry, and I think it's pretty hard for people to sort of pick, I guess, the right accountant that fits who they are, right? Yeah. It's a really tricky decision for business owners to make because they naturally have trust built up with their tax accountant because they've been doing yeah. their compliance work, you know, filing the things with the ATO, their yes. bars and, and their all, tax returns. All, this, all, this, all the financial secrets they don't want to reveal to anybody else. Yeah, yeah. So they have that familiar face and that trust built up. So it's a natural, yeah. easy sell for that person. But as you pointed out, the skill set may not be there from someone who's very compliance-based, which is very historical-focused. It's what did the business do yeah. this prior period how do we account for that and send it to the ATO? But the skill sets needed to look forward and think strategically 
into the business, completely different in my opinion, and they involve work and experience in doing. So mm. I agree, there is not all advisors are created equal. And, you know, there's business coaches who kind of do a little bit of that kind of work as well. And they do a lot of great goal setting and they, all types of different topics. What I try and do is balance both. I've got that compliance knowledge. I'm not a tax accountant, but I know it and I've seen it. I've seen my clients go through it. I sit on calls, but I kind of bridge the gap between those two areas. And my passion is talking about the strategy and talking about the operations and getting the business model profitable and in balance and then kind of shepherding it as it manages its way up the growth curve up to 5 million and, and beyond. Why is that such a big issue for small business? I mean, I've heard, some, I've seen some stats that suggest in Australia, and I'm sure the, the same is true in the US, that most business owners make less than average weight, right? So in Australia, that'd be about 50K, give or take, you know, US probably a similar sort of number. Why is it that business owners, I guess, don't necessarily look at the profitability of their business and just kind of, I don't know, reinvest everything back in. Why is there even that mentality and a thought that I just need to reinvest my profits and I will make money in the future when we know that so few businesses actually exit altogether you know, mm-hmm. or sell, even with a business broker, you know, only 30% of businesses sell. So what is it that in the, I guess, the thinking of small business owners that we don't focus enough on profitability and how we can scale profitably? I think for a lot of people, it's built on a fallacy that paying no tax equals success. And everyone's trying to make sure that they pay as little amount of tax as possible while so running a break-even business to kind of, great, we didn't pay income tax for that year, might be one part of it. I think another- I want to drill into that more. What do you mean by paying no tax is a good thing? In my experience, a lot of people don't like paying excessive tax. And they're like, look, if, if we can spend a bit in this year, and minimize our taxes, great. And then that means we pay less, but they kind of forget that they've had to spend a hundred bucks to save 30 bucks and still a hundred dollars walking out the business. And I think yeah. that okay. is a kind of mindset trap that they, they don't, people don't truly understand that they're not investing in the right areas in their business and they're just spending it to kind of save on tax. So not, not that, that's tax. one, minimize what taxes in a legal way. The official business expenses, but I would question, did you really need them? Is it really moving? your business forward, what's the ROI and that spend, all those kind of yep. things. So is that, that, is that would be because people are just not data driven enough to kind of look at what is the, you know, when they spend money in the business that they don't really look at what the impact of that spend is. Is that something you see pretty typically, not just in agencies, but in your experience across all businesses? Yeah, it's a common problem, not not being lean enough, having too high of an overhead. I think ego creeps a little bit and you're kind of yeah. you're making a bit of money. We can have a nicer place. We can have that nicer car or lease a car through the business. All those things that maybe a little bit of you feel like you want to be success and those things come with it. I think also that's one part of it, but there's others. So there's just a, an ignorance around their true business model. Their P&L that their tax accountant does in the sense of the ATL is one thing. That's like the tax. But the true operational model of the business might be something entirely different. And I don't think they have a true handle on their actual profitability in the business. And as you pointed out in the question, they're not paying themselves correctly, which throws their whole business model out of whack. A lot of people, when they first start their bootstrapping, they might take a lower wage in order to just get off the ground. And then as a result, they're probably underpricing what they're selling. And so the whole business is kind of scaled up. They've all scaled up with with an incorrect business model. It doesn't work without the founder working for peanuts. And then they're trapped in this business. They want to hire someone to do their job, but the business has never sustained that kind of wage. So it's kind of what I 
fall off founders trap and it leads to burnout and people hit a natural ceiling as a result. And they're like, why can't I grow? I don't understand. And they've, they've built this prison for themselves. Yeah. It's, it's hard to get out of to think, oh, I need to step back to go forward. I do recall I subscribe to a, a business sales magazine that gets sort of delivered quarterly with a whole bunch of different businesses. And I did find an e-commerce business in that that kind of piqued my curiosity, right? Top line revenue around sort of 750000 and the owners were working two to three days in the business and taking home 200K. I thought, okay, this is interesting. Let's have, let's take a look at the real numbers and got the, you know, filled out the sort of non-disclosure and all, and all that sort of stuff. And I can talk about it now because obviously it's, you know, probably sort of eight years ago. So it's sold and, and all that sort of stuff now. And I'm obviously not identifying it. But the when we sort of looked at, there was no owner's wages on the P&L. Right or no management wages, and and obviously you know a cost in the business. Whether you're doing it or something else, when you're evaluating what a business is worth, you're looking at what's the future revenue of this thing. Right, yeah. we can't look at business as a job. We could look at it as a business that produces profit to fund our lifestyle. Just to sort of echo your point there, Michael. Right, we get mm. trapped in it. We basically build ourselves a job where we're replaced. One idiot we saw at the office every you know morning with another idiot that looks back at us in the mirror. Um, <laughs> Right, and we've still, we've still we've still we've still trapped ourselves in it. And I think once they, and they had warehousing costs, right? But the warehousing for the all the stock was on the farm, right, in a shed on their family property. I'm going, well, you know, anyone buying this business now needs warehousing cost, and that needs to go into the P and L. And I think once I sort of worked out the actual staffing costs and the actual warehousing costs and a few other things as well, the business was actually running at a realistic $50,000 a year loss. Wow. That's a huge hole. Right. So I offered them a dollar. (laughs) (laughs) Did they sell? No, they didn't. Of course not. (laughs) Right, Because they they had this idea. And I think this is where, you know, without the right accountant, without the right advisors, you know, working with you that if you haven't accounted for your own time. And I see the same thing in, in a marketing and sales context as well. People do, you know, the founder goes to a a networking event, but they're not spending anything on marketing, mm. not realizing that, you know, the two hours they spend at that meeting twice a week, plus the hour travel either side, if it's Sydney and peak hour, it might even be more than an hour each way, right? Mm. That comes at a cost in resources to the business. It's just not a dollar resource. It's a, yeah, you know, it's a time resource that the owner can't replenish. Yeah, and that cost yeah. is not accounted for anywhere when we actually look at what's real realistically, you know, moving the needle. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and that touches on a really good other point in relation to why people tap up against these ceilings is the founder becomes a bottleneck because they're involved in every part of the business, and even if they have a small team, maybe they're busy doing these other unaccounted tasks and they're not making decisions quick enough or things flowing through them that once you get to a certain level, it starts to be a bottleneck and you kind of are restricting the growth of your own business. Do you see, say in professional services, which is where you work on a lot now, do you see kind of, you know, natural ceiling points that people need to break through? And, and- The million dollar is the, probably the first one. And then yeah. from there to the 5 million is what I'm really focused on solving. And I think that's the hardest jump to make. You can kind of bootstrap and through hard work and extra hours, the owner can get to that million dollar mark, but above it and getting to five is really where you have to build the systems and processes, have a real understanding of your team, of your model, of how you charge your team out, how it all works in order to get you to the five million mark. And I yeah, think one, one, person, that, yeah, one person cannot deliver $5 million worth of work. <laughs> Correct. That's the tricky jump to make in my opinion. Yeah. 
Okay, let's talk the trim line system, right? Because this is a thing, and I think this is a really interesting question for any business that's in that sort of one to five range. What are the things that you see that we kind of implement with the trim line system that overcomes some of these growth challenges? So I've started this and hopefully we can link to an ebook in the show notes here so people can have a read themselves. But I spent a lot of time thinking about this, about my clients who have made this jump and why they got there and why others haven't. And I've simplified it down into a three-step system, in my opinion. And that's the first one is to fix your margins and then sell like crazy. So fix your margins is get an understanding of your business model, your real business model with a market-based wage for the owner. Do your unit cost economics and understand what that is. And there's time involved in fixing that if it's broken. Step two unit, is to solve the cost ca- economics. There we go. <laughs> that's yeah, a term I've yeah. been in a while. <laughs> Break it down really simply of where all the cash goes. And I try and make these things as simple as possible for people so people can understand it clearly and just set really clear metrics. So that's why I break it down to that such a small level. So do you do it on a percentage of on a percentage basis or do you do it on an absolute? So we you know, we know that our average customer value is say ten K and X, Y, Z, you know, break it down like that. Or do you work it on percentage? Because I know for, for a lot of business owners, they don't even know what the average customer value is. Yeah. So average customer value, the simplest way that people listening could do at home is run your P&L and use something called common sizing and just group all your overhead into one bucket, all of your labor costs into a bucket, all your cost of goods sold into a bucket, and then divide it by your revenue to see as a percent of revenue, how much are each of these buckets taking up? And then what percent is net profit is left over. And presumably over a bit of time to see what's consistent. Yeah, yeah. Over a period of time, over the past three months, then compare it to maybe last year. So you can have a look at the trend of that up and down, but you want to see where you're out of balance. That's the simplest way to do it, to see where are you spending too much money or where are you heavy in certain areas. And that might give you a clue as to why your margins aren't big enough but is that the kind of thing that there are industry benchmarks or is it something you need to benchmark against yourself to say we're spending 34 percent on cost of goods we need to try and get that to 30 there's industry benchmarks but when i take on a new client we just try and beat last month it's about there is benchmarks to aim for absolutely but it's about just being better than yesterday and incrementally moving there it takes a bit of time to get there There's a lot of work involved in doing these things. So you can't click your fingers and just hit your benchmark. It's about starting where they are and slowly that's where really a lot of the work is involved in getting us there. Yeah. I know that there's a, I mean, that's something that I've kind of introduced into some of our consulting work as well, not necessarily being sort of fixed industry benchmarks and stuff like that. But I do like the idea of just like, if we're more data driven, we can actually kind of understand what we're doing, where we're spending stuff. And then we can try and beat it the month before. Now, whether it's just the number of conversations you have on LinkedIn or the number of posts you make or number of networking events you attend and, and with, you know, which, which is actually driving sort of traffic into a business. The same thing applies from an accounting perspective as well, right? What am I spending to get a client? What am I spending to deliver the client? What am I spending to run my business? And which is the bit left over that I get to keep, Yeah. right? And if right. there's nothing left over for you to keep, if you're not spending it on yourself to get the client or spending on yourself to deliver the client, you make no money. Correct. That's it right. might seem yeah. like you're making money, but you're not actually taking anything home. That's correct. And that's why step one of the Trimline system is to fix your margins because yeah. that's often the key problem. And you can't scale a business unless you have that business model in balance and correctly kind of accounted for with all the things in there that should be in there. And yeah, and that takes, as you said, an external perspective. 
like a buyer's mindset of what actually needs to happen in this business if the founder was to step away. And that gives people a different lens to look at their business. It's not just compliance, tax accountant world. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, step two. Step one, fix your margins or at least understand your margins. Which That's the first, first step. step, yeah. fix your <laughs> That's step, step 1A. Okay, step two. <laughs> step two is to solve the cash crunch and reinvest for growth. So this is yep. for businesses that don't have VC funding. You need to manage the drop in cash, the drops in cash as you manage the growth curve. So you do need to invest in the business to grow. That comes yep. from the leftover profits at the end of the month. And growth is expensive, quarter. right? Growth is expensive. Marketing, if you need more leads, is expensive. Hiring new team members, there's a lag between when you hire that person and when they're really actually profitable for you. There's a lag in training time, getting them up to speed. So you're paying cash up front, but you're not seeing a real return for a few months later. So there's a gap yeah. between those things. And all of the investments in the business obviously take, there's a lag in some respect. So solving yeah. that cash crunch as you grow and navigating that about the timing of when you hire, depending on what clients you have. And that's where forecasting, even a really simple forecast can help people to try and map mm -hmm. out the next two to three months ahead and just think about what's coming in, what's coming out. And that's why I think that step to growing your business is solving the cash crunch because that's where a lot of people struggle and that's where a lot of the problems lie we're really sort of just going beyond your standard PL here and actually looking at cash flow when yeah. you make money when it goes in and out right yeah and the second part of that step solve the cash crunch and reinvest for growth is about getting really strategic where you're reinvesting for growth so that's not wasting it on a, a nice leased Audi in your business because your business ego wants that because it looks good for you with your friends this is about What's the biggest ROI we can get with these leftover profits? For example, our marketing spend. Where would you spend it to get the best ROI to help build it? What are the other assets we're trying to build in the business for the long term? And making sure we're, we're making investments into the future of the business. We're not just kind of spending money willy-nilly on shiny objects that we think will help somehow. It's being really laser-focused with where you allocate that capital. There's a real parallel, I think, here, Michael, that you've kind of touched on in a way that the more data-driven we are in our financial management of our business, right, the better off we are. The more data-driven we are in our marketing and sales, the better off we are, the more control we have. Right? And if you're not, you're basically throwing mud against the wall and hoping something sticks, right? Yeah, yeah, you are, definitely. If you're not tracking it, I mean, it's invisible, right? Yeah. And I mean, I love a new Audi, but... <laughs> <laughs> But I think you make a yeah. really good point that, you know, let's not lose sight of the fact that a business is there to create the lifestyle that we want, right? We're not losing sight of that. It's not just about building this massive business and never being able to enjoy the spoils of it, right? As you touched on really early from your, one of your motivations is we love the time, location, and, you know, and location freedom. We love the freedom to choose who we want to work with, how we want to work with them, and when we want to work with them, and from where we want to work with them. We can't lose sight of that, but we've also got to keep an idea that, hey, we actually need to make some sensible, considered decisions as well. And maybe purchasing that new Range Rover or that new Audi isn't necessarily the best use of your money right now. Potentially is never the best use of your money. But if it's compromising your ability to do other things, then it's probably not necessarily the right decision. Yeah, absolutely. But it, as you said, it depends on their growth goals. If they have really aggressive growth goals, I'm working with a founder at the moment, and he's really ambitious and has really strong targets, but he's willing to make the sacrifices to get there. He's willing to invest more in the growth now and not take as big a dividend in order to get there. But if you're okay with kind of a slightly more tapered growth curve, 
and this is a long-term thing for you and you want to balance things in life, then we're talking about just allocating a different percentage to dividends, what you take cash you're taking out of the business versus reinvesting back into the business. So that doesn't, that, that each quarter you can decide how much you might take for one purpose or the other, but it's about kind of having a system and a rule and a structure for why you're doing that and then sticking to it, not just having one great month and feeling rich and stripping all the cash out of the business, that's why it's really important. And one part of solving the cash crunch is actually building up some cash reserves in the business and having the self-control to not just take it out and to realize those are the funds that your business needs to operate with. Because if you lose a key client or one or two key clients, you still need to make payroll for your team in the next yep. two to three months. And that gives you some breathing room. And it means you won't make really rushed or scared decisions about your business because you have the capital reserves to get you through a couple of down months. And I, that's a big part of solving the cash crunch that I don't see a lot of founders doing. And that's something I really try and force or encourage in my clients. Yeah. Well, it's a, I think that's that thing just generally, right? People spend up to and, and sometimes in excess of their earning capacity and they have no reserves at all. But, you know, I think, again, coming back to that, being really data-driven and going, well, what is my operating overhead? What is my monthly burn rate? If we had no new clients and had no more cash coming in, for whatever reason, all of our existing clients don't pay us for 90 days. Mm. Heaven forbid we ever get to that position. Could I continue operating my business for 90 days, right? And what am I doing to build that operational reserve? Maybe not all at once, as you said, it's an incremental thing, but siphoning off a little bit to build up an operating reserve equal to a few months worth of operating, you know, operating expense yeah. and then going, okay, well now the rest is gravy. I'm not going, oh, there's 200K sitting there. Let me go and buy my new car, right? That's yeah. not there yeah. to buy cars. It's there to kind of as a backup in case something else happens. I actually heard of a, a story just this morning that someone had one client, right? That owed them 160 grand. Holy moly. Wow. Not multiple clients. One client owed them 160 grand. Now, that's a pretty significant amount of cash to take out. Now it's coming out of someone's pocket. It's either coming out of your yeah. staff's pocket, your growth pocket, or your pocket. Mm. Yeah. Are they going to get it back? Do you think? I have no idea. I mean, I hope they do. But you know, that was yeah. I mean, managing age receivables and making sure that you don't get in the hole with someone that deep is something I monitor closely. My clients and making sure we're collecting on time or we set the terms of the engagement where we collect as quick as possible and then mm. calling and following up with anyone and not letting two invoices slip by, having a stop work or a policy that we set up front that, no, nah, if we don't get two invoices paid in a row, we're going to have to pause because we've got a team to pay and we can't just fund them forever if you're not paying us to do your work. So we have clear guidelines in place to make sure people don't get in the hole like that because I have seen clients who get cents on the dollar because the business goes broke and they go into liquidation and you're left holding the bag for it. So unfortunately, it's all too common. And actually, at the moment, more common than normal. There's a lot more businesses struggling. So it's a huge risk with managing the cash crunch is collecting on time. And yeah. another really common one I see is, and maybe some people listening might relate to this, is having to do the ring around to chase invoices to make payroll. Like if There is nothing that, worse than having to do the ring around to chase payroll the next day. <laughs> I see it so often and that's, a warning sign that you don't have any capital in your business. You don't have working capital. You need two to three months of operating expenses sitting there. And I know it's really hard to avoid temptation, but treat it like your war chest. It's your sleep at night fund. It's giving you peace and quiet to know that you can weather a couple of storms without. But you can understand why you can understand why people, you know, go, I've had enough. This is too freaking hard. 
right? And they close yeah. their business within the first five years. Right? And I refute this idea that businesses fail within the first five years. I think business owners just haven't got some fundamentals around what's my margin supposed to be? Am I charging my client enough mm. for the work? You know, yeah. And there's a propensity yeah. to kind of win the work, particularly when you start, you don't have massive amounts of funding sitting in behind mm. you to go, I'll just charge whatever I can to get the client in the door and be busy yeah, and just do busy work, not necessarily profitable work that helps you build that world just to pay you what you deserve to be paid yeah. you know, at a market rate. You know, And it's hard to pay yourself a market rate when you're getting started. You know, let's not pretend yeah. that it is. But you know, certainly once, you, once you're over that seven figures, you should be paying yourself a market rate for what you do in your business. And if you're not, you kind of need to have a conversation with someone like you, Michael, to right to go, okay, what should I be paying myself and what should I be doing? But certainly, you know, having that operational overhead and building that war chest, as you say, to go, I've got this. If I don't get paid today, it's not the end of the world. Right? Yeah. I can, because otherwise you get to this point, if it happens too often, you just go, this is pointless. I'm just stressed all the time. It's going to affect every other aspect of your life, your health, mm-hmm. your relationships. You know, your yeah. enjoyment of the thing that you got into business in the first place for, and you'll go, Yeah, exactly. Okay, I'm had enough. I'm out. Yeah. Right. And you'll close yeah. and you'll be one of those statistics. Yes. Okay. Unfortunately, potentially you would be. And when you're in that panic mindset, you'll probably take on more bad clients at a discounted rate because you're desperate for the yeah. cash. So you dig yourself a bigger hole, a bigger problem. You might kick the problem a couple of months down the road, but being in that state of panic, you never make good decisions. Yeah, it's not good. Not good. Okay, let's go into number step three. All right, we so we've got our operational ratios. We're working well. We're managing our cash flow better. Super important. All right. Step three is building real value and systemizing. So that's the final step on our way to a five million dollar business. And then obviously from there, you'll get to ten twice as fast once you've built all of yeah. these structures. So building real value is understanding the hidden drivers of equity value in a business, not just your monthly P&L. So what, as you said, a buyer looks for in a business, it's about obviously building the founder out so it's not key person dependent, but it's also about locking in your leaders, your team leaders through staff compensation plans. That means they do want to stick around for the long term if slash when you want to sell and exit, that they still have incentives to stay. And then starting to think about what multiple you might hit depending on your size, what things do you have in place that you need to build into there and you know, put yourself through a mini due diligence of what would a buyer ask for, what contracts do I have in place, what staff contracts do I have in place, all that kind of boring but really important stuff that real businesses have and that will really help you for that exit eventually. So starting to think yeah. a bit more like a CEO that level than of just a founder. Yeah, it's the level of maturity, not the doer. I read a a really awesome post recently that talked about entrepreneurship not being fulfillment. Interesting. (laughs) Which I love. That was like a slap in the face, that one. I was like, oh, shit, why didn't I work this out soon? (laughs) But I think you're so right. Yeah, when we look at what, you know, if we were going to sell a business at some point, right, and most people at some point will look at an exit. I think we, whilst we take a bit out of our business, you know, as it's operating. And generally speaking, as you acknowledged earlier, we generally don't pay ourselves enough for the work we do, but we're building an asset ultimately to be able to sell to somebody else, right? That's our big cash out, right? So many business owners that I know certainly sort of compromise their sort of retirement savings and reinvest everything into the business without actually looking at, well, how am I going to make sure this thing has value to sell at some point. And yeah. you're right. You know, what is it? I think you need to sort of, again, step out of your business and put your buyer hat on and go, if I was to buy this thing from somebody else, what would I look for? Yeah. Right? And you're not looking for a job. Here's a tip, right? Massive tip, right? You are not looking for a thing 
that someone, you know, people don't want to buy jobs. I'm not going to give you $5 million or $10 million for the privilege of working. Yeah, exactly. Myself. Okay. Yeah, I call, I call it the laptop right? test. The laptop test. Sometimes what I use to help put this message in the founder's head is if you close your laptop yeah. right now, didn't answer an email, didn't pick up the phone, how long would your business survive how, until something broke and clients would leave? And sometimes that period is far too short and a little bit scary to that person. And that shows you how that's you do a, need. You need to be out of it. That's a great question, that one right there. There's your yeah. bombshell for today. If you had nothing else from to date from today's episode, <laughs> literally close your laptop and go, how much, how long will the money last? Yeah. Right? And that's basically what your business is worth, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's I mean, ultimately, I like to challenge people on this thinking and particularly around the systemization stuff, which is so important, right? People are buying the future cash flow of the business. Right. A business that's worth 10 million bucks, right? But requires you to work 80 hours a week to get that $10 million is not as valuable as a business that makes a million dollars a year, but requires none of your time whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also about proving that as well. Like you need one to three years of clean financials where you haven't just been paying yourself nothing from the business and that you have been putting a market based wage through it. And they can trust those figures that. You know, yeah, you haven't been sort of keeping your know, stocking the shed out the back, <laughs> yeah, and not yeah. putting warehousing costs on. Or there's a bunch of personal items you've been kind of running through the business in gray area expenses that kind of hide the true margins of the business, and you need to adjust for the past five years for all of those. It shows yeah. that you haven't been taking a professional commercial mindset to the business and you've been treating it like a piggy bank. And that's a you know, if a buyer comes along and sees that, they'll also question. What else have you been doing that you haven't been telling me? Yeah. There's clearly no rules to how you've been running this thing. Yeah, the question about uh, yeah, we took some, we took another two hundred thousand dollars in cash. <laughs> sure, you did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's something called add backs, and that's kind of where the negotiation happens. So it's like, what do you want to add back to the profit of the business that should be in there or shouldn't be in there? And it gets into very murky territory when people are negotiating. Yeah, so keep, keep it really clean. Exactly. All right. Well, let's, let's, let's quickly recap those. Let's quickly recap those because I think this is this is a really good lesson that I think applies to every business. You know, in terms of you know systemizing what you need to do to kind of exit, and particularly from a financial perspective. So it's understanding your key ratios. Make it simple. Just group them into sort of the buckets of acquisition, delivery, business overhead, and profitability for yourself. Mm. I presume we can put your owner's wage in the profitability bucket, or do you put that in the overhead? Oh. Uh, Traditionally, I'll put it in the labor cost. The owner's wage should okay. be with the rest of the team. And we look at that as a percentage of revenue. That's the simplest way to do it. Fantastic. Okay. So profit is clear, clear profit. And that's what we're trying to identify. And if there is no profit and the profit is in you're your not, wage, you're not charging enough or everything you're else is you're not, quite re- you're not quite ready to scale. I'd say improve your client list at the revenue level you're at. Get a portfolio of great clients whilst you fix the back house and get that in order. Yeah, awesome. Love that one. Okay, stage two. Okay. Yeah, fix your margins, sell like crazy. Stage two is solve the cash crunch and reinvest for growth. Yep. And as we spoke, business is a hungry beast, especially when it's growing. So build that war chest. Once you know your margins, have a system around how you're investing to grow and know, think about it with a commercial mindset and with discipline. You can still take a dividend. I'm not saying you, this isn't supposed to fund your life, but you should be allocating a percentage to reinvest for that growth or to build the capital for that journey ahead. Yeah. Okay. And step three is all around that systemization. Good test. Yeah. Close your laptop, work out what breaks. Actually, I, I took a trip to Europe last year for the Rugby World Cup, which was awesome. 
and the first time I've been to one. And definitely shout out to the French who put on a fantastic tournament. But being able to step out of my business for literally almost three weeks and then come back and go, okay, so what broke? What didn't work without me? Not necessarily what did work, but what didn't work without me. And I think there's a really cool lesson in that. And say, if you had to walk away from your business, in fact, go and do it, right? You may need to sort of prep and say, you know, I might need a couple of months of preparation. But if you sort of step out of your business for a week or two weeks, expect things to break, but come back and then sit down with your team and go, what didn't work without me? What did you need me for? Yeah. Ultimately, that's yeah, the think, thing you're selling. Yeah, right. exactly. So yeah, that's step three, building real value and systemizing, having those clean financials, but having a clear story, all the good margins, founders not in it, team are locked in, you've got strong brand marketing, all the systems, your sales systems, which I know you help clients build, you know, you can turn the pipeline on and off, your delivery systems, your financial systems to control the cash flow, all those things are rock solid. And from there, once you're at five mil, you'll get to 10 mil in no time because the, all those bedrocks are in place that help scaling to that next level so much easier. I love it. I love it. So many value bombs there. Michael, we're going to wrap up with a bit of a quick fire and see how you go with these questions. How did you meet your significant other? I met my lovely wife, Ruby, on Bumble, which is one of the apps. There was kind of like Tinder was the first, Bumble was the, the next. And now I think all the young kids are on Hinge. So, so we're in the, the middle app, but I, I don't know if anyone uses anymore. <laughs> there we go. What's the most important lesson you've learned over your career? I think the value of human relationships. Business is actually just human relationships. And that's been a, a huge lesson and a reminder that although we try and build brands and we want to kind of build something that's not just us, humans buy from humans and having that connection with people is critical. Yeah. Brush up on your interpersonal skills, people. It's a really important. What's one thing about your business where it is now that you weren't expecting? So on the advisory journey, I think I've learned a lot about how I approach the craft and how I can deliver value to founders. I think at the start, I was very, and I was an accountant 20 years, I was very template focused, very kind of here's a spreadsheet that will help solve all your problems. But I've realized that actually my value is in shifting people's mindsets and making them excited to work on their business and to hit those goals and all the templates that I would come to calls with. That's not really what people wanted. People wanted to hit their goal and you can help them do that in many other ways. And that's been a bit of a journey for me in terms of how I approach my craft. Yeah. Awesome. Love that. Lastly, what unique skills do you think you've possessed that have helped you be successful? I think you, you touched on it at the start, actually. I'm, I've got kind of a balance of left brain and right brain thinking. So I have a creative side and, you know, that was evidence in the, the film kind of part of my life. So I kind of have creativity and problem solving skills, but also the accounting knowledge and the kind of bedrock of does it make sense? And I think that's kind of why I love what I do because I can talk big dream goals and creative problem solving to challenges but also ground it in the data in reality. And that's kind of, I think, my unique skill set that not all accountants might have that I think where I add the most value to people. That's awesome, man. And I um, really appreciate you sharing some of your journeys today and some of your methodology and how you approach it. I think some actually value bombs. I've taken a bunch away already that I'm going to go back and look at again that I know I've kind of do occasionally, but not consistently. If you're interested in Michael's ebook, you can head over to https colon forward slash jo.my forward slash qr forward slash trimline dash growth. So I'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. You can grab that. Michael, thanks again for joining us today. It's been awesome having you on, mate, and chatting with you. Thanks, Tim. Thanks a lot. And if that website 
is too hard to remember. It's also on my website, trimline.co.co. You can find there's a link to the ebook there as well. Yeah, awesome. You can grab that from Michael's website. Again, we'll put that link in the show notes and links to connect with Michael on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Definitely suggest you do so. And if you enjoyed today's episode and think that Michael can help you in your business, please, but you know, I'm sure he would appreciate you reaching out and so I can uh, have a look at what you're doing and provide an absolute wealth of insight and knowledge. Guys, thanks again for joining us on today's episode of More Clients, Less Effort. Hopefully putting some of these tips and advice into traction, into place. If you've enjoyed today's episode, like, share, subscribe, all that usual stuff. And we'll catch you on another episode real soon. See you. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of More Clients, Less Effort. Join us next time for another insightful discussion filled with actionable advice and inspiring stories, all geared towards helping you grow and scale your business simply and easily. Remember to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app so you never miss an episode. See you next time.